Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Australian economics. Today, for episode 405, my guest is Paolo Ardono. He's the CTO of Bitfinex and Tether, and also the CSO of Hole Punch. So Paolo joins me on the show to chat about a wide range of topics. We talk about lightning security, lightning adoption, Tether reserves, this question of whether Tether pumps Bitcoin, uh, Tether audits and attestations, as well as what's coming with Keat and Hole Punch. Now, just a quick note on this show, unfortunately, we lost the first part of the recording. So what you'll hear is actually us jumping straight into some of the discussion around Bitfinex and Lightning security. Now, apologies about that. Paolo was willing to re-record that part, but we just didn't have time to make it happen quickly. So I thought best to put it out. The information is good. So I'm sure you'll find value in the discussion that we were able to record. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is organizing a conference called Pacific Bitcoin. It'll be on November 10th and 11th this year in LA, California. This is an excellent opportunity to learn about Bitcoin, or potentially if you've got friends and family members who you are just trying to help them learn about Bitcoin, maybe getting them to attend this conference would be a great opportunity for them to actually hear from some of the people in and around the Bitcoin movement. There are so many awesome speakers, people like Lynn Alden, Mark Moss, Alex Gladstein, Pierre Rochard, Parker Lewis. So come and join us at Pacific Bitcoin, November 10th and 11th in LA, California. That's pacificbitcoin.com and use the code LIVERA to get a discount on your tickets. Mempool.space is the Bitcoin Explorer built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. It features real-time transaction tracking and mempool visualization, so you can quickly get the information you need about your Bitcoin transactions. You can also keep an eye on mining and get some sense of where the blocks are being mined and by which mining pool. Mempool.space is available over Tor and also completely open source, so you can even run your own Mempool Explorer at home on a Raspberry Pi. Over 1 million people use Mempool.space every month. The project is operated freely for the benefit of the Bitcoin community without ads or third-party trackers. Go and try it out. It's Mempool.space. When it comes to securing our coins, we have to consider hardware, and CoinKite.com are the leaders in the Bitcoin industry in Bitcoin hardware. They produce the cold card, which is one of the most recommended Bitcoin hardware signing devices. Now, the cold card is a very versatile device. It has gone through multiple iterations. The latest version is Mark IV, which is available on the store. It has NFC support. It has an additional secure element, and it has all kinds of different options and versatility that you can utilize as part of your Bitcoin security setup. So you can use this as part of a single signature setup. You can use BIP85, you can use Seed XOR. There are different duress pins, BrickMe pins, all kinds of features that you can use to tune your setup just how you need it. That website is coinkite.com and use the code Levera for a discount on your cold card. And now onto the show with Paolo. Okay, so... With Bitfinex being an early Lightning adopter, did you have any concerns around the security of it that you know that there might be vulnerabilities out there in the wild or that potentially an attacker could try to, let's say, grief the node or do, do all kinds of things to Bitfinex's Lightning nodes? So, you know, we, um, we at Bitfinex had an in-depth review of, of Lightning. And uh, I think that um, one of the most important things that Bitfinex did was actually prove that uh, Lightning was already a, a well thought and secure uh, network, right? We were the first exchange, I think, to launch five Bitcoin channels just to prove that it could be used as a safe way to transact and send out um, or receive uh, even large amount of of, uh, of money. We're quite Bitcoin, where at peak, quite a lot of money uh, around 300k. So we are seeing nowadays more and more usage on a daily basis by traders that are you know want to get in or out of positions 
uh, pretty quickly and they want to send uh, Bitcoin collateral or, or send out Bitcoin collateral. So I think that is uh, super interesting. But, you know, the one of the core functions on an exchange, right, especially an exchange that has been around for such a long time like Bitfinex and has been always loyal to the ethos of Bitcoin is is um, actually not being scared of technology, right? If we were scared, so without, um, uh, you know, this type of uh, approach, you wouldn't have Bitcoin in general, right? So there is always a little bit of risk uh, in doing things, but it's more important, it's really important to, you know, um, have an in-depth review, uh, do your own audit, uh, do your own research, and then you should really embrace Bitcoin technology, right? We did that with uh, with also Liquid, we have been supported uh, supporting SegWit pretty soon. Um, so uh, I think that uh, for us has is always been you know we we love tech and we love Bitcoin and we feel like our role is to demonstrate that uh, this um, uh, despite all the fad, most of this technology is actually uh, extremely safe. And nowadays, Bitfinex has the biggest uh, like nodes I think still that has around that have around altogether seven hundred Bitcoin. Right, so it is not small money, and we feel really comfortable. We have our setup with watchtowers, and of course, we have we have our own. You know, uh, we we protect ourselves, we protect our customer money, of course, but still, we feel really, really comfortable in in uh, in, in running these big nodes. And uh, you know, I always say that uh, uh, Bitcoin tech is the most solid one. You don't know, so I'm the guy that run. Uh, you know the 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 nodes on the back and installs all the upgrades of all the blockchain nodes as well, right? So and, and the, the the reality is that um, Bitcoin and Lightning nodes are at the most solid ones. You don't know how many times I have to restart, upgrade all the other blockchain nodes. It's like everything else seems really kept together by rubber and bands. <laughs> right. And so sometimes on Twitter, we see these debates around how easy it is to sync up a node and we see various debates. And some of that devolves into technical debates about exactly what qualifies. Should it be a full node? What about an archival node? What about fast sync and so on? But uh, I suppose uh, hearing it from uh, the exchange CTO who has to run all of these different chains, I guess that's uh, the real market test, let's say. And just as you said before, right, with security and People saying, well, oh, we don't know if Lightning is secure yet, but at the same time, you're putting into practice with almost 700 Bitcoin, which at today's value is, what's that, like 15 million or more in USD terms, or probably even more than that. Um, so, you know, we're talking serious money. And so I think it's interesting to see that. Um, I, I'm also curious as well, because this is another line we see on the Lightning front is we see people saying, oh, look, there's not that many people using Lightning today. Um, a lot of people would rather use altcoins or use maybe even stable coins and things like that. I'm curious what your view is on that because you are obviously being part of Bitfinex and have, you know, working with companies like say BitRefill, I guess you, you sort of have some insight into that as well. But I, I guess the question I'm asking is, do you foresee Lightning being used for day-to-day -day commerce and taking up or do you see it as it's just going to linger for some time until later? So first of all, people don't prefer to, to my so people not, don't prefer altcoins to transact, right? So the, the reality is that people prefer altcoins to speculate because it's really easier for someone that have inside information, you know, in some project to make 100, to make 100x in, in, in profit, right? Because, you know, there is some token 
that is backed by VC that is pumping and you know you can still make uh, in in six months 100x that is extremely difficult with Bitcoin if you think about it because Bitcoin in order for Bitcoin to grow in value there has to be so there is is kind of a longer process in a rightful way right so it's not like you create a value out of thin air there is a community there is a lot of work there is adoption there is nation state adoption that needs to happen and so but that how that is what money should be right it is not the money shouldn't be something that create value out of thin air and uh, you know is uh, is extremely speculative Money should be something that people feel comfortable in holding for for different reasons, and that's why you know we are seeing a lot of usage of of altcoins that is f- fully speculation. And of course, uh, when you have you know, some bags of of altcoins, you might want to you know throw them to you know, somewhere to buy something or exchange them for something in order to get uh, out some some value. But uh, I would distinguish the usage of altcoins compared to to Bitcoin. When it comes to actual uh, as a, as a payment system, so or, or like a value system, a transfer system. So nowadays we are seeing stablecoins and actually tether mainly uh, to be used as the primary uh, primary uh, way of um, transacting wealth for or sorry transacting for micro payments, right? So that is, um, I think that uh, tether in this moment is serving as a pro as a easier approach to digital money for the majority of the people because not everyone understands uh, uh, Bitcoin from the get-go. And uh, I want to be clear that um, I don't think uh, that uh, Tether is superior than Bitcoin. Bitcoin. There is only one Bitcoin. Tether is centralized, right? Tether is, um, is a centralized token using a decentralized transport layer. So the Tether is no Bitcoin. Still, it's it's um, is a system that at least for the time being, right? So it, it is offer it offers a good um, and an all ramp for people, uh, as well as uh, probably as I said, an easier approach to understand the technology, right? So my my father before moving to Bitcoin had to you know uh, had to have a wallet on his phone that was similar to PayPal, but had you know was holding and day uh, day after day the same value. Uh, the value that he was expecting, right? So, you know, his life and the majority of people's life is still based on fiat standard rather than Bitcoin standard. In the future, that might change and would be really happy to see that changing, right? So maybe in 20 years, we will not need Tether, who knows? But um, nowadays, I think Tether is um, is something that still has its utility and use, is used a lot as a, as a payment system. I think that as a store wealth, uh, Bitcoin is definitely uh, more used and is definitely also more superior because uh, has um, it has so many inherent values, right? In terms of uh, confiscatability and, and you know, censorable money, uh, financial freedom, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I think that uh, there is this um, sort of dualism between between Bitcoin and, and, and Tether in that sense. When it comes to stable coins, I think that is uh, you know ninety nine point nine percent speculation. Uh, we'll see uh, what the history will will tell. But at this, at, um, it it is what what I feel at least now. Uh, but uh, when it comes to Bitrefill, you mentioned I, I love Bitrefill. By the way, I think is one of the most brilliant ideas that uh, that we are we have as a company in in the crypto space. And by the way, is a good example of how a company. Can build the product or can build a huge use case that's something that is serving millions of people 
without to have or reinvent yet another token, right? So um, things like uh, Sergey and the team are, are doing wonders that are really fundamental part of the Bitcoin ecosystem, really like that. But definitely they are heavy users of Lightning before ourselves. And we are, you know, we are, Settling, um, a Bitfinex user can buy uh, Bitrefill gift cards, and the the transaction is immediately settled by via Lightning. So I think that is a brilliant example as a use use case where um, Lightning can uh, help two companies to settle immediately, overcoming the FX problem because our user pay you know pay immediately. There is no time to wait, and um, Bitrefill can can hedge themselves immediately. On the on the price of which they bought the the the, the gift cards from from the supplier, so that is uh, and we are seeing that also in El Salvador, right? So we are seeing um, uh, big companies like uh, McDonald's or Starbucks that are being um, asked to adopt uh, uh, Bitcoin Lightning payments, and uh, you know you and and they did right. So in in a way is. Um, See, you you don't need. It's not that complex if there is a good reason for it, right? So people think that uh, Bitcoin or Lightning payments are really complex, but then when asked for or when pushed, um, even big companies and and, and corporations uh, are you know don't take much time to support it. So most of the time, it's just goodwill and uh, you know and, and priorities. I see. Yeah, and I think to the point around comparing, let's say, Bitcoin usage versus, let's say, stablecoin usage as well. As you were mentioning, it seems that historically a lot of people were very high time preference in the Bitcoin sense, where they would pay a lot of fees to move between exchanges very quickly. And it seems that over over the years, it seems like some of that volume has kind of shifted into stablecoins. Like that's probably that's kind of my understanding of how some of that's shifted. But then I'm curious as well, from your perspective, in terms of Tether customers and users, did it start with that trader use case, but actually now we're seeing non-traders who are using Tether and stablecoins? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, initially Tether was created in 2014. Tether is the company that created this entire stablecoin market. And um, initially was just to provide a better way to um, to do a cross-exchange arbitrage, right? In order for a, a financial industry to mature, especially a new one like uh, like the Bitcoin one, you have you need to make sure that the price of Bitcoin across exchanges is as aligned and as possible, right? You cannot have an exchange like in 2013 that has Bitcoin trading one thousand dollars and other that is trading one point two thousand dollars, right? The, in 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 finance in trading, the when this happens, there are traders that sell Bitcoin on exchange where the price is higher and buy back on the exchange where the price is lower. In order to do this, you need to move Bitcoin from one exchange to another. That is um, fairly easy. It takes 10 minutes on average. And uh, But um, the problem is was that in 2014, in order to move fiat from one exchange to another, it was taking five days because all you know in, in international fiat transfers and was really painful. So the brilliant and simple idea of, of that was why we don't reuse Bitcoin as a technology, but uh, we put a dollar on the blockchain. Simple as that. So started all with with this small concept, and over the years, then people figured out that actually uh, tether could be used as an inflation hedge. Could be used. As, uh, think about Turkey or, or Argentina. At some point, like in in last month, a tether was trading six percent above the dollar in Argentina, and was take um, same in Turkey. I was talking to this uh, friend in Turkey, 
and he said, "Look, you know, as he has um, um, uh, his children, right? So, and um, he thought that, uh, as as many parents do, it, you know, they they think, okay, I want to, uh, I want my children to go and study abroad, you know, want to see more cultures. But the problem with the devaluation of Turkish lira that devaluated around eighty um, percent uh, in the last uh, sixteen months." At the end of the year, he's going to be poorer than at the beginning of the year compared to you know uh, foreign uh, countries. So, if, for example, if um, he wants to send his his uh, children to to study in in Europe or in the US, it uh, it cannot because you know he he lost eighty percent of his buying power um, against the dollar or or a little bit less against the euro. So he's using tether to. To save money because he wants to he was just to save money don't doesn't want to speculate he doesn't want to do anything he just wants to 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 be able to give for what uh, to his children a better life i think is there is nothing wrong with that and but that is if you think about it, it is a huge case that uh, makes sense for everyone right is in argentina brazil is is even italy right is um we are all people that uh, have been emigrating uh, everywhere right and in order to do that you need to you need to to be able to to have some money uh, put aside so it's becoming kind of um, a way to to save money a way to combat the devaluation of national currencies all around the world and also is is uh, considered by some some countries we are seeing uh, the parallel government of uh, of Myanmar like NUG from from you know led by Sanssouci was uh, uh, adopted tether as their um, legal tender, and, and that is um, although as a, again tether is a centralized money, it is a way that you know um, it it allows also this type of of freedom acts that um, same happened with the, with the Ukraine that uh, um, when the war started, they announced that they would accept three currencies. The first one was Bitcoin, second Ethereum, and the third one was USDT. So. We are seeing more and more use cases uh, of stable coins around the world. Is is money that is faster, is programmable, is uh, um, at least a bit more censorship resistant than 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 the other. There there is now a big question mark and up, after the last few days events, but uh, still, I think there is um, it, it's um, it's something that is changing dramatically the way we are looking at uh, money, fiat money, in the next uh, ten years. So as I read you then, you're seeing it, maybe it's like an onboarding tool in your views. You're seeing it like for, for the people who aren't ready to go straight to Bitcoin, they might use Tether as like their little bridging way of kind of getting there. Uh, and I guess, as you're saying, this is for people who are potentially not capable of dealing with Bitcoin's volatility, because uh, if you're going to use Bitcoin like all in as a saving, then you have to be willing to do that over the long term. And as part of that, Generally, you need to be able to at least have enough income so that you don't have to spend it now, because otherwise you're going to have to spend down all your Bitcoin in like a bear cycle, and you know obviously that's not advisable. Although you know it has to be done if if it has to be done, right? Um, but I guess so. To the point, as you were saying around the censorship resistance aspects, I'm curious whether you see stable coins as like, are we going to see a lot more regulation come? So I I guess probably there's two main angles I could see. One is kind of like this idea of if governments around the world try to regulate stable coins, 
as a money market fund or as a bank or in some way, or the other one would be probably some kind of KYC AML requirement on the users of the stable coins. Um, so I'm curious from your point of view, do you, do you see those as like big risks for stable coins or do you see it more like this is just a big growing market and you know that's just going to be part of the, the process of, let's say, quote unquote, being able to be accepted by governments? So um, there is a lot to unpack here, right? There is also the concept of CBDCs uh, and the competition with the privately issued stable coins, right? Sure. So, yeah. and it's all about there is, uh, of course, there are privacy concerns uh, and uh, and so on and so forth, right? We uh, even um, even in the US, the was a bill was proposed to Congress to ban the US from doing their own CBDC for the potential risk in terms of privacy, for example. If you go and buy um, a coffee with and pay with your uh, credit card nowadays, you, you know, the, the central government will not get that information right from your credit card, right? So, uh, the credit card will only um, signal uh, transactions that are suspicious, right? Big amounts, up maybe above ten thousand dollars, and uh, they are suspicious, right? So, if you are buying like a car. It doesn't matter, right? But uh, for example, if you if you are interacting with something that uh, or someone that uh, they deem nasty, uh, they will signal uh, your transactions called suspicious activity report. Now, but in a CBDC world, the 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 scare, the the fear is that um, uh, CBDCs could be used by by central governments to track every single action of every single citizen and control their decisions in because they can control their money, right? So. It is um is probably is pushed a little bit to the extreme, but uh, you can see how uh, in, in some countries can that can uh, easily happen. So it is it is interesting. I think that uh, when it comes to CBDCs, they are not actually a competitor of privately issued stablecoins like Tether, but CBDCs could be still used as a way to, as I was mentioned before, improve the interbanking system and settlement system. Right. So imagine that uh, now is. Uh, based on rubber and bands that cost to uh, uh, taxpayers a ton of money on a um, yearly basis. So taxpayers are, are, are spending, you know, everything is, uh, is flowing in, in, into the pockets of, uh, of uh, governments that didn't improve the, their technological, the fundamental technological infrastructure in the last 30 years. So if we use a little bit of blockchain technology, peer-to-peer technology and so on, could be a leap forward that will reduce the maintenance cost of a public financial infrastructure by, by a lot, uh, big margin. So I, I don't mind to see blockchain used in that sense. In a way, money has been digital for the last 30 years already, right? So it's just we what uh, CBDCs could do is just to do a leap forward and forget about 30 years of technology and just adopt the last stage of technology when it comes to financial settlements that are blockchain. I, I don't have any problem with that. I think could be even an intelligent move. But um, when it comes to privately issued stablecoins, you can imagine that... Uh, no, no central bank will issue on Ethereum or Solana or on Tron or whatever, right? So they they will never take the risk of picking one or picking a winner. They will never take the, um, the security implications about, you know, imagine like uh, <laughs> a CBDC issued on Ethereum and now there is the merge, the verge, the splurge, how I, I don't know all these names, but, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, you can see like uh, people scratching their head and saying, "I'm thinking, okay, an hour. What we are doing? Are we support for supporting Ethereum proof of work or proof of stake?" Like, I mean, that's not how you know uh, uh, the Fed would act, right? So uh, they, they don't want to get into these problems. 
So I think there is a big case for privately issued stable coins. That is, this is a long, long, long story to, to get to this point. Then definitely regulations will come, are coming. Uh, from there, there are two aspects of, uh, I think regulators are really interesting. Uh, although there, there is a lot of noise around stable coins, actually the, the thing that um, from what we are hearing, is, uh, regulators are more interested to regulate is actually DeFi. Right. So, and and stable coins are a good proxy for DeFi because they are the ones that are more used in lending pools to 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 provide yields and, and interest. Basically, they are the ones that uh, DeFi pools are considered the, the the tools used to subtract revenue to banks. Right. We have been living in a world for the last thirteen years. Um, the interest rates on on bank deposits were almost zero. And so, um, so in, you can see that the first opportunity when people could get ten percent yield per year, they they would take it, right? So, it was much better than losing money or not making any money on your bank deposits. But um, that is what regulators can call a systemic risk, right? So, if everyone started to pull out money from from their banks, what happens, right? What could happen? These banks might get uh, uh, be subject to a bank run and 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 uh, be bankrupt, right? So. You know they they really don't want to see that happening. So that's why what I'm hearing is uh, that uh, the one main concerns is actually you know DeFi lending. Also on the other side, uh, you have um, uh, stablecoins regulations that definitely are something that uh, uh, that is extremely interesting to follow. In one case, we believe that um, stablecoins should be regulated as cash, right? So um, we have primary markets. So when a customer acquires or redeems a stablecoin through Tether or our competitors, and the secondary markets are blockchain movements, right? So on on, on blockchains, of course, as Tether, we comply with uh, with the requirements that law enforcement uh, has asked us. For example, we collaborate in, in freezing assets when they asked us to do so and so on. Remember, Tether is a centralized stablecoin using a decentralized transport layer, right? So we use bank, the banking system. Because everyone talks about um, dollar-based stablecoins, right? So everyone and, and their sisters are trying to create a, their new stablecoin that is fully decentralized. But all the attempts so far have not been great. So either they are too small, so no one cares and they don't have much utility, or when they become big, actually they were you know, taking, on, uh, taking on so much risk, like Terra, that then became systemic and completely wiped out um, 80% of the value of the crypto industry. So the problem there is that uh, everyone wants, so here is the absurdity in a certain sense. People want dollar stable coins, but also people want these dollar stable coins to be fully decentralized, but they want to, be, to use these dollar stable coins to then cash out. Right? So, and now you scratch your head because you, know, you want to cash out, so you want someone Given access to or, or or accepting that you can go back to your bank account, but you want it to be fully decentralized, and so uh, I mean there is not a good way to make it work, right? So you can so someone has to deal with the banks, and if someone has to deal with the banks, it means that you are still recognizing the importance of the traditional uh, banking industry, right? Because you know you want to cash out and buy a house, a car, whatever, or or a laptop, whatever, a phone, so. In a way, uh, I feel like people should make up their minds, right? So if you want a dollar stable coin, you should be ready to, to have some compromises. Otherwise, there is Bitcoin, right? 
to me, anything that is not Bitcoin is inherently centralized. So, um, so I, I'm happy to live with that concept, and I, I'm happy to you know that the tether works well because it has is this bridge between you know the old and the new, and uh, and uh, we believe that uh, we, regulators eventually will see stable coins as something that definitely needs to be regulated, has to be subject to clear standards. Um, uh, providing like disclosures, providing uh, a certain type of uh, attestation or audit uh, requirements, uh, and so on and so forth. That is all fine, uh, but uh, it has to. Um, we we need this type of clarity, and hopefully, they will see. And this is you know the the path we are we are we are seeing. At least the current discussions are suggesting that stablecoins will allow to operate in in. Um, in 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 ha- uh, as they are operate on on chain, but of course with uh, still the requirements that we have of uh, you know freezing, collaborating with law enforcement, and so on. So Tether in the last eighteen months was able to um, collaborating with law enforcement was able to give back to their legitimate owners around one hundred million dollars, right? So sub- we have seen so many hacks around the world in, in DeFi, and um, in the end, the Tether has been you know this this this. Um, this company that uh, helped uh, as much as it could to, you know, when we receive, when um, uh, someone is subject to a hack, they go to law enforcement, we get the request from law enforcement. Uh, if the judge confirm the stay, we freeze the funds and we work out a solution to provide back the funds to the to the legitimate owners. So uh, that is also a good story. It can be seen in both ways, right? So you can say, well, but you can freeze money. Yes, but also you can give, you can help people in that way. So that's something that um, for a centralized stablecoin is at least compared to a bank is a big uh, improvement because uh, banks are much slower in, in this type of approach in, in, in helping people, I believe, with their with their own funds. So it's such a changing, um, um, you know, uh, we are such in a changing uh, moment for stablecoins that will be definitely exciting to see where we are going. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so I'm also curious then uh, in terms of where things are going with the censorship, as you rightly said. So it's it's an openly centralized model, obviously, as opposed to the purported decentralized, you know, idea. And so obviously over the last few days, we've seen this whole thing happened with the tornado cash so for listeners who are unfamiliar basically there was an ethereum mixer protocol that essentially got sanctioned by the ofac treasury office meaning especially for us individuals that they are now not allowed to interact with this system and so what we've seen is this weird interplay where because of that ofac action usdc addresses which is a competitor stablecoin has been frozen or at least certain components of it and so it kind of creates this weird dynamic where I guess it just will mean stablecoin issuers will just have to be very sort of cognizant about what's going on in various governments around the world. And some of them may say, oh, we want you to freeze this. And then it might put you in a really awkward place, right? Because then you have to sort of like, okay, US government has told us to freeze this. This other government has said to freeze that. Is that basically the position you would have to, you're kind of being put in? Yeah, definitely is is going to be tricky, right? So uh, again, complying with uh, with requirements, the regulatory requirements, is, is going to be um, critical because again, we are relying on the banking industry, right? So we we need to be to be um, to maintain the same level of uh, of scrutiny that the banking industry has, right? There is no way around that. 
on on this specific case, but in general, it's also important to understand that. So the, the big uh, question that needs to be clarified um, in is uh, so there are two type of addresses, right, in involved with stable coins. There is um, the addresses that are owned by the the stable coin issuer that are like the treasury wallet and the smart contract. It's a smart contract. And also, and then there are addresses on the secondary market that are owned by the actual users, right? So uh, the clarity, so there was never clarity on uh, if uh, stablecoin insurers, because there was you know, never the chance to give this type of clarity historically because it's such a new thing. So are stablecoin issuers required to freeze someone else's address as a blanket uh, freeze? Right. So this um, in this case, for example, well, we don't serve U.S. customers in our case. Right. This is uh, a US, what was suggested was a U.S. requirement. But at the same time, the question is, because we have been working with many U.S. based law enforcement agencies recently, you know, after the last few days on things that are even related to this specific case, but has always been like a direct request of freezing specific addresses, because keep in mind that. As you said, there are multiple regulators around the world. And the problem is that there are ongoing investigations on um, that are involving these addresses. So if you blanket freeze them, then you, you, you actually are interfering. You could be interfering with other regulators' investigations. So it's always like, uh, so you need to have a direct interaction. And so far, no one contacted Tether to, to freeze all those specific addresses, right? So it's always, it's important to, uh, comply with uh, with uh, with uh, with the, the requirements, of course. At the same time, it's important to to have full clarity because otherwise, you're just doing actions randomly, and that could jeopardize the years of work of someone else, right? So it, it, it's super tricky. So it's not the uh, the perfect position to be. Back to the show in a moment. Are you a Bitcoin miner or interested in the Bitcoin mining industry? Brains.com is the place to go. They have a blog with all kinds of educational content. And if you're a Bitcoin miner, you need to check out Brains OS Plus. Now, if you check on the website, which models are supported, but if your model is supported, you can increase hash rate on your Bitcoin ASIC. You can improve efficiency by as much as 25%. You can point your hash rate towards any pool or get 0% pool fees if you use Brains OS Plus and point your hash rate towards Brains Pool. Don't forget, you can also run profitability calculations using the Insights dashboard, which is also available on the Brains website. So you can throw in your own numbers, have a conservative estimate or potentially an aggressive estimate and see where the numbers crunch out. So that website is brains.com. Are you a builder in the Bitcoin space? Voltage can help you if you need to set up your Bitcoin node, Lightning node, or BTC Pay server node. So if you want to integrate Lightning payments, this no longer has to be an afterthought. Voltage makes it really easy for you. You can even think of them like a Sherpa. They will guide you down that pathway of setting up Lightning payments infrastructure. They've got blog posts and material that make it really quick and easy to spin up your Bitcoin node, your Lightning node, or your BTC Pay server node, and get incoming liquidity. So you can scale nodes instantly by the thousands. What was once a headache is now simplified. So go to the website. You can do it in a few minutes. Get a node up and running in under two minutes by visiting voltage.cloud. And finally, there is a Drain the Exchanges promotion going on. So my sponsor, Unchained Capital, are helping you. If you haven't set up your multi-signature vault with Unchained yet, they've got a promotion on with Concierge Onboarding. So up until the, the 8th of September, they are removing the $1,000 rebate. And so the price is just a simple $250. And there's a discount code. Use code Levera, and that goes down to $200. So you'll have someone from the Unchained team 
guide you through setting up a secure multi-signature vault and withdraw from the exchange into your vault. This is a great opportunity to remove single points of failure, give yourself that peace of mind and help you sleep at night. Unchained.com slash concierge is the website and use the promo code Levera to get $50 off your concierge onboarding program. And now back to the show with Paolo. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think the other, obviously, this has been a line. This has been a line in the industry for years and years and years. People have been doing this whole line of, oh, Tether is pumping the price of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies and things like this. And I know this has been like a regular line that we hear over and over. So I'm curious, what's been your response to that? And maybe if you could just outline for people a little bit on the process, like what happens. I guess maybe without going like into the deepest technical detail, but if you could just kind of give us the basic idea of mechanically what's happening in terms of when new tethers are being printed and versus when tethers are being uh, destroyed or redeemed? So the process is pretty simple. So in order to acquire tethers, so we have a $100,000 limit. So we work only with, uh, let's say, big clients, big institutions to acquire tethers, right? And redeem tethers. So the the process is uh, you get, um, so a customer wants to acquire um, USDT. They send $100,000 with as a wire to our bank account. And we send back to their design desired wallet one hundred thousand USDT tokens. A customer wants back his uh, uh, fiat. They send one hundred thousand USDT tokens to our treasury wallet, and we send them back a wire for one hundred thousand dollars minus the fees. Right? So there is both for issuance and redemption. There is ten basis points fees, but that is as simple as um, really as simple as that. I think the big misconception, but I think is not like a genuine misconception for most of the time is actually you know there is this narrative that uh, tether has been pumping bitcoin price i think that is extremely stupid for many different um, for many different reasons because um, it's like saying that the only reason why bitcoin has value is because of tether that is i mean i think that uh, everyone agrees that or should agree that is not the case bitcoin has a huge uh, use case around the world has been, you know, um, growing much before Tether has been, you know, is being adopted by nations, is being adopted by huge institutions like Fidelity, BlackRock, and so on. So there is, there, there is, um, so Bitcoin has value full stop, right? And it's really important. It's like one of the, probably the most important currency that we have nowadays. The, also the, the misconception is that, uh, Bitcoin price was going up because Tether was printed. But actually, you know, the people are, the funds and institutions want to enter in Bitcoin, so they need to issue or acquire Tethers in order to buy Bitcoin, right? So the fact is that if you are like, uh, if you want, and we are, have seen a lot of, uh, of these uh, institutions recently, last year and a half, to, they wanted to get a huge Bitcoin exposure, Right, we have seen you know many um, um, Fide- uh, from Fidelity to you know uh, any all these big companies in Tesla and so on. All these companies are like so they are using OTC decks or, or, or hedge funds in order to get exposure and buy position. So if you are if you want to buy half a billion of um, of uh, Bitcoin, the dollars of Bitcoin. You don't send all the money to one exchange and click market buy, right? So you want to work with an OTC desk that will give you the best price, right? In order to get the best price, you need to work across multiple trading venues. And the last thing you want is to take like a half a billion and, and split in, in, you know, 15 wires and send 15 wires around. The, the easiest and most common use case is buying USDT 
and there are basically every single exchange in, in, on this earth supports USDT. So you take US, uh, you buy USDT once, and you send this USDT out to the, to the fifteen different t- trading venues, and you can. Uh, and by the way, the USDT markets are the most liquid markets. So it's as simple as that, right? In order to buy Bitcoin at the best price with the highest liquidity, you just you you use the USDT markets, and so in order to do that, you need to acquire USDT. And so, in a way, we are the central uh, liquidity pool for the entire crypto ecosystem. I see. Yeah. And so I think that's also, yeah. So I guess in simple terms, new tethers are created when a person issue wires, you know, USD, USD into the tether bank account. And then the reverse process is when they are destroying tethers. It's, you know, it's the other way around. They want to redeem that fiat cash back into their bank account. Okay. Same process. And then I guess the other aspect is tether travels across different blockchains, right? So it's on liquid, it's on various altcoins, it's on, etc. So yeah, I think perhaps where I'm seeing it is I, obviously I would prefer people to just go straight to Bitcoin, but I recognize, I understand there is a, there's a demand out there. Maybe I'm not necessarily the market for that, but I can understand, I can recognize there are people out there who do use that. And so they may be using, let's say, Blockstream Green, or they may be using uh, the Tether. I think Tether has a native wallet or its own wallet application. And so I suppose those are some of the main things. Uh, I think the other questions that people have, maybe some listeners are wondering as well, is thoughts around the the bank accounts, the reserving, the audits, and these questions that people sort of have. So I, I know there's been a bit of a storied history with Tether. So I'm curious if you could sort of give people just a bit of a, an understanding about you know, the use of different reserves uh, in terms of Tether's balance sheet, you know, just for, so that people are understanding what's going on at Tether so they can get a picture from that. Sure. So one of the big biggest misconceptions is that, uh, you know, Tether is this black sheep that doesn't have audits while everyone else and all its competitors have uh, full audits. And that, of course, is not true because actually the industry standard and every single stablecoin issuer has is relying on attestation so what has been produced on a quarterly or monthly basis by uh, by uh, stablecoin issuers is actually are actually attestations and not full audits so we think that uh, in the next uh, two years the industry standard will move to full audits and tether is actually actively working to have a full audit uh, we don't know about the others, but we we believe that we could be one of the first, if not the first, to have that. So, uh, on a you know, continuous basis. So, one of the uh, other uh, interesting and most um, uh, discussed parts is the com- famous commercial papers, right? So, actually, Tether uh, voluntarily in two thousand twenty one with the first attestation produced uh, what, something that no other stablecoin had at that time was called breakdown or reserves, right? So in the, our breakdown reserves, so all the stable coins were saying, well, we have all the money, don't worry, right? But um, we went one step further and we said, okay, we have this stuff in our portfolio, you know, and we, there were $30 billion of commercial papers and people started questioning that. So we said, okay, fine, you you want to see a bit more. Let's, let, give, let us give you uh, the ratings of these commercial papers. And the result was that vast, vast majority was uh, A1, A2 rated by standard poor. So super safe stuff, right? It's not like uh, you get the commercial paper from the grocery dealer on the end, on the end of the street. It's, it's, it's stuff that uh, is extremely liquid, stuff that has just a few basis points more in, in return and in interest than, uh, than U.S. Treasuries. So things that you can sell on the market without any, any loss. So uh, still, uh, there was a lot of um, concern remaining, right? So... 
what we said publicly um, was June 2021. We said, fine, we are going to phase out commercial papers in order to do that. And we are going to increase our U.S. Treasury's exposure. So uh, what we started, we started doing that. And uh, at the end of uh, this July, so to that July 2022, from 30 billion previous year, we went down to 3.5 billion. 3.4 billion. And by the end of August, so in 20 days, around 20 days, we will be at 200 million. And by October, will be zero. So we have been, I think that this has been, and no Chinese commercial papers and, uh, you know, the, all this uh, stuff, right, that was, uh, that has been around is, uh, um, has been really uh, concocted to, to, to make us look bad. But inherently, we, I think even with the last uh, two, last two months has been showing that Tether is actually, you know, the the company that doesn't take uh, the same risk that uh, all the other heroes or consider heroes of our industry were taking, right? So everyone, uh, since the Terra Luna uh, crash, everyone was looking at Tether, right? So, so much Tether news. I have been doing like uh, probably 100 interviews, right? Always repeating the same thing, right? We were the only institution that was able even including traditional financial institutions that was able to pay out $7 billion that were 10% or always it has to be proportional, 10% of our research in 48 hours. In a recent financial history, um, there was one institution called Washington Mutual. They went bankrupt because they had to pay 10% of their reserves in 10 days. So we did much better and they went bankrupt. We, we didn't have any issues. In one month, we paid $20 billion, there were 25% of our reserves. Without the blink of an eye, we could have done much more. But yeah, during all this period, right, everyone was looking at us and concerned about Tether. It happened that actually all the mighty heroes of, of our um, crypto community you know, were taking loans right, without any collateral, without any backing. They were doing the craziest things. right? Some of these were even public companies under the SEC uh, overview. How that could have happened, right? And all these, some of these are actually, some of these companies are owned by some of our biggest critics, right? So you now scratch your head saying, okay, why, why? So you're criticizing me, but what, what, what the hell is happening there? Because it feels to me that uh, if you are given a loan, you should be overly, overly collateralized. And yet, you know, we were the only guys that uh, demonstrate how this should be done, right? So if you are offering a loan, you should be over collateralized with something that is extremely liquid. And we, we demonstrated that really well. So uh, long story short, definitely a lot of misconceptions around Tether. We, we should have done, I think, a much better job in terms of communicating with, uh, with our community these type of things. And I think that nowadays, recently, we started doing, doing that much better. Right? It's, it's true that uh, um, one, one interesting fact is that uh, until was uh, May last year, uh, May 2021, Tether didn't even have a marketing team, right, or, or a PR team. So we thought, like, really naively, and I can say this uh, openly, that, you know, you, you have just to keep your head down, work, and, uh, you know, everything will be fine. But we realized that it's not always like that. And we were naive, right, also a little bit uh, dumb, because, of course, people need to have information. And, uh, but the fact that you are, like, uh, not waving around uh, and, uh, and doing all huge marketing events doesn't mean that you are a bad guy. Just Maybe it just means that, you know, you, you are focused on, on, on your own stuff. But we realize that we have to improve and we fix that. We are fixing that, right? We, are, we, we want to be more and more, um, provide more and more information. 
we are stepping up the game also when it comes to attestations and you you might see that in the next few days and, and so on so definitely many things changed but uh, uh, I think that uh, this should these last recent events should be a teaching moment that uh, you know when uh, maybe tether was used as a uh, distraction while the rest of the industry was taking the the bad parts from the 2008 financial crisis playbook yeah unfortunately and so as you said the so-called heroes of uh you know shitcoin twitter um so yeah we we, we yeah we won't go too into that but i think i think it's interesting as well just to see how quickly the market has grown right over the last few years it seems that the whole stablecoin market now yes it took it you know it took a bit of a crash after the whole terra luna blow up but i'm curious your thoughts on what that portends and this notion that in some sense like yes it's us dollar denominated but in a in a in a sense you're kind of like a you're almost like a central bank and you're holding like reserves like us treasuries uh, and in some sense you'll become like over time if tether just keeps growing you become a larger and larger kind of central bank in a sense uh, although not that you're issuing loans and things like that but in a in a loose sense i'm curious do you see that perhaps a lot of people around the world will kind of run to USD because let's say their local currency is, is horrible, right? Like I've, I've family in Sri Lanka, they, they got wrecked on, you know, LKR, uh, massive devaluation. And I'm sure, you know, there are people out there in various countries around the world who want this product. So I'm curious, your view, do you, do you believe that in some sense it helps? Uh, there'll be a lot of people out there who are just running to USD and then they're just going to run to stablecoin. And so that means it's kind of bullish on the state on stablecoins as a market. So you can argue that the stablecoins are actually an instrument to increase the hyper dollarization of the world. Right. So and, and that is an argument that we heard a lot also in, in the Congress talks. Right, um, for good or for for worse, that is uh, that is also true, right? So, as you said, you know, uh, and that is what we are seeing every day. Companies and and uh, private people, especially private people, are running to the dollar. But think about Argentinians. An Argentinian person can only buy two hundred dollars worth of dollars on a monthly basis through their bank account, right? And uh, using and so the problem is that even if they have dollars on their bank account. That doesn't mean that the, the, their bank will not seize those dollars if uh, the, the country is in distress, right? And that is something that people in the country, Argentinians, worked really hard for. So you have control over how many dollars you can buy. And even if you buy them, you, cannot, uh, you might not be able to use them because they can get seized. So in the end, people are just trying to look at their own safety, right? They want to, you know, they, they want to protect themselves. Uh, and uh, there is nothing wrong with it. it, it it's like uh, is is in human nature try to be safe, right? And uh, you want to have to be safe yourself and your children, and um, the, that's that's a, a, a natural uh, progression that uh, that uh, more and more people are learning. If you go in Argentina, Brazil, El Salvador, Venezuela, everyone knows the term tether, right? And they know they are used to use tether as as their money, as just it's just dollars for them, right? And um, it's the the uh, crazy thing is that we never spent a dime in, in marketing um, there because it's it, it, it happened organically. So when you create a product that uh, it, it it grows organically, it means that you created something useful, right? And um, it, it grew not because we were good, right, or we were you know um, thinking to all the use cases. It grew just because people needed it, and that's probably 
for good or worse, worse is, is like the, the, the best outcome uh, for, for a product. So I, I think that, uh, that that use case is, is, uh, is, is extremely important and that needs to be supported. Sometimes, you know, when I talk to people, even, you know, I, li- I, live, uh, I live part of my time in Switzerland, I move in Europe a lot. And when I talk to people, sometimes they, they don't understand why either Bitcoin or stablecoins are needed. Right, because you know Europe is uh, is is in general is a wealthy group of countries, quote unquote wealthy group group of uh, countries, and so people don't realize that maybe just maybe there is someone else in this world that uh, is living in a different condition, and you know what is true for a certain for a certain country might not be true for another one. Right, you said you have. Uh, family in, in Sri Lanka, but you know, don't don't think that Italy is is a you know is a wealthier country in a way, right? So it's like uh, that we have still euro. We have seen the, the the loss of euro against the dollar. It's not probably that big compared um, again to OKR, but you know, it's um, things are getting unpredictable, and with this geopolitical uncertainty, uh, things can might get actually worse and worse pretty quickly. So having uh, a lifeline. Uh, um, and uh, a, an accessible lifeline um, to people, I think, is part of human rights. Yeah, for sure. I also want to chat a little bit about, I guess, maybe this is getting to, we were talking earlier a bit about how Tether is across multiple blockchains, right? Across, you know, like Liquid and plus some, you know, shitcoin chains. Um, but I'm also curious to get your view on some of the different protocols. Now, I know, obviously, Bitfinex is an investor and has people working in say RGB also there's you know synonym with omnibolt and then lightning labs have taro as well which is perhaps another competing you know similar uh, has some similarities to RGB so i'm curious your view on those protocols how how you see tether would tether be going and traveling on all of, all of those or just say omnibolt and RGB because they're the ones that you know bitfinex has uh, some investment into well no i think that uh, the role of tether is um, you know, as long as the technology um is there and can be used with a good degree of, of safety should be supported right so the fact that so we invested in rgb and omnibolt before taro right and uh, we will continue to do that um for us it's important to invest in uh, r&d so taro has an approach uh, omnibolt has another approach and RGB as yet another approach. They have some overlapping, but they are all good for for same or different use cases. And we should be supportive of uh, all these solutions. It's not like we don't want to, as long as the technology is there and it's good, we want to be supportive of that. So uh, we have a great relationship with Lightning Labs. We have a great, uh, we of course are funding different projects. And to me it's like, um, you know, Maybe these are not the ultimate solutions. There is something to, even more, even farther to research. So, for example, we are. What if we could uh, build um, better lightning channels or, or like more efficient, uh, have maybe more efficient routing and so on? So, you you, you never know. And the, the only thing, you know, the only way to know is to hire great talented people that will spend some time in in researching, uh, uh, testing, proving, and. Um, Maybe some of these protocols will, in a let's say day-to-day mass scale use case, will fail. Right? Maybe they are not really ready to be, or, or they might not fulfill the requirements of for, for mass adoption. And then you keep moving on. But if you don't try, if you don't invest, you you will never know, right? So that's why that's what we are doing. So we plan to be supportive of uh, all the different flavors, uh, as long as of course all the premises in terms of security are there. 
yeah, that'll that'll be interesting to see. And I presume then that for people who are designing products, building services for people in markets that have high inflation, right? The Sri Lankas of the world or the, you know, the Venezuelas of the world, then perhaps it would be useful to have wallets and applications that support both Bitcoin and Lightning, obviously, but potentially also have support for Tether on, you know, RGB, Omnibolt, you know, all these kinds of things. So they kind of have like a multi-currency wallet uh, that easily allows them to sort of flip back and forth if they need to between Bitcoin and Tether in that particular use case, I suppose. Yeah, I think that um, I see a world in which uh, you have, you're, you're maintaining your main wealth in, in, in Bitcoin. And then when needed, you just flip some of um, a small portion to to USDT just to pay for the things you need in that specific moment in time, right? So I myself, I want to see uh, hyper-Bitcoinization and Bitcoin use as a standard, right? We need more services that are, and more companies that are actually valuing themselves based on how many Satoshis or, or Bitcoin they, they hold rather than, you know, always thinking back to, to the fiat standard. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And I, um, I'm curious to see where that develops. Also wanted to chat a little bit about Keat as well. So I had a, I had a quick play around with, uh, you know, so, so for listeners, Keat.io is this uh, kind of like a Zoom comp competitor in a way. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about Keat and this whole idea of hole punch? So what is it? What's the connection here? Yeah, so a few years ago, uh, Matthias, myself, Matthias Boos, um, myself, and uh, we started, we, we are big uh, uh, proponents of uh, peer-to-peer web. Right in in uh, in the 90s, when when the web started to grow in adoption, was actually uh, truly peer to peer. Right, people were was um, web was uh, created for uh, for knowledge sharing, right, and access to knowledge. Um, that is one of the biggest achievements of humanity. But then more and more companies started to look at it and started to create the services that were fully uh, fully centralized. And the, 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 there is this concept that, um, you know, most of these services are actually free services, right? Social networks and uh, Zoom and for many and WhatsApp is all free. And if it's all free, then you start um, thinking how they can cover the cost of this, uh, of their infrastructures, right? So uh, because there are immense costs in terms of hundreds of millions, if not billions per year. Now, of course, you are the product, right? The data you're producing with a video audio call, with uh, sharing content, sharing chats, text, everything that you can think about, you are, what you are producing is their product and uh, actually is the way for them to make money. Now, myself and, you know, and uh, I've been always a big proponent on the fact that uh, things should be fully um, decentralized and... um, um, Matthias myself started thinking and discussing three years ago. So this project uh, goes back three years. Well, actually five years, but three years. We founded uh, with uh, Bitfinex Tether and Hypercore, that is uh, his company. We founded um, uh, this concept of Hole Punch. Uh, to make it uh, easy and short, um, the comparison is: imagine, I'm sure you are familiar, and your your listeners will be familiar with uh, BitTorrent as a technology, yeah. right? BitTorrent is that unstoppable file sharing uh, network. And um, BitTorrent had uh, many interesting protocols. Uh, the was using the distributed hash table called DHT. That is a way to, is a key value database that is distributed. And then use hole punching. That is a way to connect the two devices behind firewalls without passing through a central server. 
And the third technique was uh, swarming. That is a way. So if you remember when you were seeding a file and more, the more people were downloading the file from you, they could start resharing the file among themselves. So the more people were accessing the, accessing the file, the, the download for everyone was becoming faster. So we discussed uh, a lot and we thought, okay, but you know, this is great technology, right? We have been fond of that technology as you know, actually unstoppable uh, communication technology for the for, for, for last uh, 14 years. And, um, uh, and by the way, Bitfinex has internally in, in the Bitfinex uh, private network, we use the very same technology to create our microservices system that are powering uh, Bitfinex. That's why Bitfinex never goes down. On uh, when under load because we have this we are using this very technique in, in internally to <clears throat> to create this high resiliency and basically what we said is okay but BitTorrent is just for static files what if we could reuse the very same technology to to create uh, to to for live stream live data stream live data streams so when you are on a on a call when you are sharing trading signals when you are doing every almost everything in your day to day life you are creating live data streams. But usually, these data streams are going to centralized servers, right? So now we are on Zencaster, or you know, there is Riverside, there is Zoom. There is, but think about it, right? So if I want to call you and talk to you, why we should use a central server? What is what is the what is the reason, right? So because the reality is that there is no reason, right? So you have an IP address, I have an IP address, and we should be able to connect each to each other without passing through um, someone else's server. Right. So that is the, the insanity that we are used to in our in our life. And even more so, the other narrative is that even, even if devices and computer, physical and desktop computers can actually could theoretically do connections one-to-one without central servers, mobile phones instead would not be able to do that because they are limited. And that is the other biggest lie. Uh, um, lie. Mobile phones are more probably more powerful than your desktop, right? So, the M1, the new M1 laptop that uh, of Apple is has the same chips on the mobile phone and and uh, and the, the desktop, and actually the, the the mobile phone is extremely optimized, right? So it can do things that are quite um, quite important: uh, rendering, uh, taking amazing photos, doing really shooting 4K videos. So everything that can be, and that requires CPU, GPU, and, and so on from, from the phone. So the, that is the, the, so the fact that you cannot connect directly is, is really a big lie. And the fact that you need a central server is a big lie. So usually you could argue that you need a central server because, you know, you are behind the firewall, right? You are at home. Uh, I cannot easily connect to you, right? So if I want to do a phone call to you, a video call, then how my traffic can reach to you and vice versa. But that's why, you know, that is what BitTorrent Tish does. BitTorrent was using this technique used, uh, called hole punching that was, is allowing to bypass firewalls in a certain condition. Well, it works. We, we are proving that works all the time. We enhance this technique. But it's a technique that is um, cooked in, into the, all the routers and, and firewalls and allows if, um, if the connections are agreed to start from the internal side, so all the connections are, you, you can always connect to the outside, but uh, the firewall blocks connection from the outside, right? But if you, we all both start a connection from the inside and we have a third party that sends specific type of uh, packet to both of us in the same time frame, then you can establish a direct connection without any central servers. 
Simple as that. Well, it's not that simple, but it's simple as that. Now, we could enter in all the crazy details if you want, but um, long story short, this proves that you can establish a connection that can go between two computers, two devices, two phones. Now, the, the benefits, and this is why we created Kit as a first demonstration of this technology, is that with Kit, now we can have um, a chat. We can reuse the DHT, that is that key value store, as a meeting point for people that want to create a room, right? So you want to create a room um, where you have like 10 friends. One create the room has a, has a link that is a, actually a pub key of the room and that gets stored on, a, on, a, on the DHT. So the others can reach out and find the room through the DHT. Then you have hole punching that is allows people to, to all these um, friends, peers, to connect to each other without a central server. And now suddenly you realize that, first of all, using Zoom, for example, there, is, there, are, there are many concerns. First of all is, so the technical uh, limitations are that Zoom has to compress your bandwidth and reduce the quality of your video and audio because there are, there are millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people using it, right? So they need to save bandwidth. Otherwise, their bandwidth will choke. As much as they have bandwidth, it will choke. Right, there is 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 centralized, so there is no way around. And so with Kit, uh, you actually don't need to do that, right? You can decide the quality of your video because there is a slider. But actually, you 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 have to take a shower before using Kit because we can get you the highest quality video calls ever made, right? So you if you have anything on your skin, you will see that, right? And then um, the crazy thing is that we, we are using to describe Kit and the advancement that we have is, imagine that we are on a Zoom call and I want to share with you a three gigabyte file, a video file, right? A video that I shoot. I drop it in the, in the chat and this file will go to the first, my computer needs to upload this file to Zoom servers. It takes two hours when the Zoom, and of course, Zoom servers limit at 100 megabytes. So, but let's, uh, let's make a for by hypothesis that you can do that. So you upload three gigabyte, it takes two hours, then everyone can start downloading it and see the file. It takes like four hours and uh, super annoying is not real time. But with Kit, you have a three gigabyte file. So no limitation could be even one terabyte file for what you care, because there is no infrastructure. It's just your bandwidth. So you drop a file in the chat in Kit yeah. and all the, your friends can start can pr press play and they can start streaming directly from you. And then they can swipe the slider to two hours and a half and their computer will just ask for the chunk of data that it wants and need at that time. So it will not download everything. Is you can just streaming and sweeping and taking the chunks of that of the video that you want. So you have much higher quality uh, video calls, lower latency because you don't need to pass through central service. You go directly. You can share bit files with no limitation and immediately can be streamed. And the beauty of it is that you even imagine that you have one, 1,000 people call because you can do that with Kit. You will be able to do that with Kit. And you share a file that uh, a three gigabyte, a gigabyte file. A question would be, what if everyone is starting to watch the file your, your, or the video, your bandwidth will choke because you, they will all use your bandwidth. But the beauty of it, remember, we are using BitTorrent technology and there is a swarming. So if someone starts playing, the more people are playing the file, they're actually sharing the, file, the the chunks among themselves. So it doesn't matter 
there is no there is no infrastructure. Everything is super simple. We built all these primitives that allow developers to create applications like Heat extremely easily. Also because the programming language and the technology we're using is the same technology to build websites. So now from, from December, when we are going to open source it, everyone that is a front-end developer that can do websites can build fully peer-to-peer applications that can replace things that uh, cost billions of dollars like Zoom. Fascinating. And I so I played around actually just earlier today with uh, Federico, funnily enough, um, just to test it out. And um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. So I think that's probably the other criticism I've seen amongst the communities. They're saying, oh, why isn't it open source? A bunch of Bitcoiners are typically more privacy and security focused. So I'm curious, uh, why wasn't the application open sourced at this point? So it will be fully open source, both Keith as an application and the whole punch as a platform will be open source in December, right? So that was um, an interesting decision, but I took it uh, being, you know, having Matthias is is the, uh, is a big uh, prominent person in open source. I myself uh, as as well, I published, you know, I, on Bitfinex GitHub um, public repositories. We have more than 200 public repositories, open source repositories and with MIT license, right? So for us, of course, the goal is to get open source. And Matthias has like 1,000 public repositories, right? So in our mind is, is always we want to go towards um, uh, full open source. And there is no question around that. Now, we wanted to avoid the classic uh, crypto play where, you know, you get, uh, you release something after one day, you get forked and you get a shitcoin on top of it, right? So <laughs> we wanted to get as far as possible to create the good use cases to prove that we could cover like uh, the, the chat, the Zoom replacement, and now we are working on Telegram, like uh, Zoom is video first, but Telegram is text first, and then video as an addition. So we want to cover a few use cases to avoid that someone takes the technology and um, that is would be still an early stage and fork it and add a shitcoin on top of it. So in, uh, we are not pushing this down the throat of everyone. So we there is a big alpha logo uh, on top of it. So so that the people understand that, uh, you know, they, they, they need to choose to use it. And um, we have been extremely public about the fact that it's not open source yet and why this is the case. So we want to change that. But also we want to, no, we don't want to lose the opportunity to create a, to use a technology that is so could be so disruptive, and seen used for by some Web three BCs uh, for for you know their to, to pump and dump something right. So uh, it is what it is. There is no perfect solution. You know we we are so focused on the technology now that we don't have the time to watch our back for for that from happening. So it will happen I anyway. See. We know that. But uh, we want to be at uh, a bit a better stage also with the structure of, of, the, of the framework and so on to actually provide more use cases that are free as in freedom rather than, you know, paper talk. I see. Yeah. And so uh, does that mean then there are other applications coming down the line um, from, you know, using the whole punch protocol? So we are discussing about peer-to-peer VPNs. I believe that is one of the most interesting ones because nowadays VPNs are blocked because of uh, IP addresses, right? So it's really easy to harvest maybe NordVPN and, and, and the pure VPN IP addresses and the infrastructures um, to to uh, actually you know blacklist them so no one can use in a specific yeah. country VPNs. But uh, with the, with Kit, you can build the peer-to-peer VPNs and uh, they would rely on residential addresses. And so you know, then it becomes impossible and unstoppable. 
Um, so you can do also peer-to-peer mapping, right? So you can actually get, that is quite exciting to me because uh, mapping are, and I believe that uh, the two things that are the most important thing actually of, of, uh, of what we should be doing and what should be peer-to-peer should be search engines, right? So all part of my um uh, research in university uh, in computer science and math was uh, related to search engines. And um, to me, that is a really an exciting topic. I feel like uh, people shouldn't be told or the, the, the data shouldn't be, or the results shouldn't be sorted based on how much someone is paying Google, but should be more sorted based on, you know, the locality of that data, right? So if, for example, I want to come to Sri Lanka, I want to eat well, I want to know what someone living in Sri Lanka running a, a node providing an index on the best restaurants would think, right? So there is a lot of work in, in, in search engine and, and knowledge sharing that they feel we stopped and was stopped due to incentives from, from big tech companies. And also, uh, there is an interesting uh, and really underrated problem in this world, right? So in Europe, there is something called GDPR and a bunch of laws that prevent that should that tell you uh, as a as a company operating in a certain country that data should reside in the territory that you are operating in and even more so that is true for um is is even more true for for public administrations for example switzerland denmark france italy so you actually there are uh, laws that would prevent you to use a communication suites that will move the, your data that you are producing, video, audio, and sending files and so on, outside of the boundaries of your country, right? Or, or, play, or outside of boundaries that have different rules. For example, you, can, might, you might still be sending data outside of countries that are, uh, um, that are still anyway part of the GDPR consortium in a way, but you cannot like, uh, you shouldn't send uh, data to countries, especially private and important data like public administration produced data to other to a communication system owned by other countries in denmark i was talking to matthias there is this um recently you know they had these schools all buying google chrome chromebooks right and then they stopped that because <clears throat> they understood that there was nothing preventing google from harvesting and indexing people uh children homework right so this is going to be more and more important I was talking to a few public administrations in switzerland and they said we would use Kit because we have a big problem. We we need, we are using other solutions that we shouldn't be using, but there is no other good solution. So we need to be able to talk and have a good talk with high quality, with resiliency, and so on. It has to work, but we need to be able to use this, and the data has to remain in our own country. But whatever other solution that you. As a as Zoom or, or Google, you don't have like a, you don't know where the traffic is passing through. You don't know how where which data center everyone is sitting. But with Kit, it's actually peer to peer. So if everyone is Switzerland, the data will remain in Switzerland, right? And if you choose to to talk to with someone that is not outside of Switzerland, that is a choice that the administration or anyone can do. But that that information, that communication line will just get to his house and residential residential IP address without passing through centralized servers. So that is there is much more to okay. These guys are, are build a privacy, you know, um, a privacy chat. It's not that. It's something that more and more data and data centers will be weaponized around the world because imagine you are 
an Italian and you have you are using you know all the social networks and new cloud storages and so on. And eventually something changed in the po- in geopolitical setup, and then you know your data is not anymore your data. You know when when thing, uh, things hit the fan, you know things can change pretty quickly. So you want to have a system that allows you to communicate, to store data, and so on in a safe way where you con- retain control over your data. And that's why I'm so critical about Web three uh, in many cases, because it feels to me that uh, it's still Web two with a dif- different hat. So they are not solving the problem of centralization data. They are just trying to tell you that yes, before in Web Web two, the big tech companies were making all the money, and now instead they can leave you some crumbles, so you can make you feel like you make me some money that is probably zero point one percent of the, the how much value it gets squeezed from your own data, and yet if there is a big issue internationally, you won't have you, there, your data is not anymore yours. It's also written in terms of services most of the time. The data is not yours. So we wanted to to fight that back and give an opportunity, an alternative, because we feel like uh, the, the world needs is going to into a place that is even is always more dystopian and or Orwellian. Excellent. And so with the Keat application. Uh, you mentioned as well the possibility of building in Bitcoin and Lightning payments as well. So could you tell us a little bit about that and what that would look like? Sure. So Bitcoin and Lightning payments are are quite interesting um, because we feel like um, so. And that is, you know, a few days ago I made to explain this. Uh, I made a meme uh, was taken from the Joker Dark, Dark Knight. You know, when he said it's not about the money, it's about sending a message, right? So one of the questions we had with uh, with the Keith is why you are not using Lightning as a uh, signaling server or data distribution system because it is already installed, has you know some nodes around and so on. And I personally really love Lightning, as we said, but uh, um, the analogy that I made is is not about money means. Lightning is built for the primary use case has is protocol that deliver wealth, transfer wealth and root wealth. So if you want to send 1,000 Satoshi, 1 million Satoshi, it's just the same payload, the same data that needs to be routed. Of course, these are, they are still have protocols to transfer data around. But uh, uh, the other part is it's about sending a message. So it's about the analogy is about sending data. So it's not about sending wealth and transfer wealth, Keith. And whole punch is about sending data. Now, with the we with the Keith and the whole punch, we wanted to use the best protocols that we could develop that would offer the highest throughput to send um, megabyte, gigabyte, terabytes of data around the world without any limitations. So you need so. And also, we needed the freedom to innovate and and and, and move fast, right? So instead, Lightning has bold specifications and so on. So it would have, would be really hard and slow for us to adapt to that. That is not even the use case for which this protocol has been assembled and put together. So for us, but we recognize and we know that, of course, it's not um, we, we we are not living in communism, right? So people need to be paid. Uh, for for the work they are doing, so the SDK, the whole punch SDK, is offering primitives to provide payments. So we are offering a Lightning Network integration, so people can decide to be paid in Bitcoin for the services that they are providing or USDT. 
Excellent. And so would that be like built into the application then and like it, it would show an invoice, that kind of thing, people can scan and pay it or maybe connect their lightning node? Like, is that kind of what you're envisioning? Yeah. So the first approach that we are considering is using Greenlight from Blockstream that is like a non-custodial uh, hosted on, on their premises node, right? So because we, uh, in order to follow the, the spirit of peer-to-peer, of course, it has to be non-custodial. This is like, uh, will be fully open source, non-custodial, and so on. So that is really important. At the same time, we wanted to make it a mass application, right? So people shouldn't... Uh, so if we... Um, the beauty of it is that I really believe that Kit and the other products that we build on, can build on, on top of Hole Punch are actually the key to increase the installed monetary base of Bitcoin 100 times in the next three years. So it means that we, if we, we are the first company in a certain sense to build actual mass adoption applications, all right? So we, if you go on the Kit website, it's not like, okay, there is this crypto token and all these complex yeah. financial incentives. It's a chat, right? So yeah. <laughs> use it as a chat. And we had 60,000 downloads in the first two weeks, right? And there is no even mobile. So I believe that it can really spin up uh, and there's no cost for us. It's just a bunch of developers developing and contributing to code, right? So there is, no final, there is no infrastructure to run. So it can be used by 1 billion people without any problem because, you know, there, there's actually no cost. So that's why I, I feel like it's um, uh, important to have something like a green light. And of course, we are also adding the advanced mode where you can have your running your own node and connect to your own node and so on. But we wanted to start with the, with the uh, green light initially because it it was just offering a, a faster way to to provide um, uh, self custody uh, lightning and Bitcoin access to and rails to to people. Of course, yeah, sure. Uh, and listen, if you're interested, I've got an interview with Christian Decker where we speak a little bit about green light, so you can check that out. Um, and uh, also curious as well, like does Keat itself or does Hole Punch, I guess. Does it have a business model itself or is it just sort of funded as a project by Bitfinex? Like what's the model there for the sustainability ongoing? The underlying protocol, so the whole punch protocol will be always free and remain free as well. Kit will, Kit will remain free. So we have other ideas, right? So as we said, there, there are plenty of services that can be built on top of whole punch. But the beauty of it is that um, whole punch as a company will not have more control than others on the network. There is no network, right? There's no global state network. It's just a bunch of peers uh, creating direct communication with each other. So any developer will be, we are creating basically even playing playing field ground to to create applications. So any developer can actually create, uh, take an existing Web2 application and build it on top of a whole punch and uh, get paid for it and will not get any cut out of it. And that how it should be, right? So we want to create applications that generate revenue, definitely. And we plan to build a startup fund to make that happen. So to fund uh, um, companies that create value on top of a whole punch, but not value that need to have a yet another token, first of all. So we want services to be useful and, and go back to the word, you know, the, the, that crazy word before, you know, all this uh, ICO boom where, if you were in order to make money, you have to create something useful, right? So uh, that's something that I quite miss, and um, I think that we whole punch, uh, we we can recreate that type of environment. And eventually, what we have now, we are seeing now in crypto, is not sustainable. So we will not be different than anyone else. Uh, we want to create, um, uh, we want to give a platform for everyone. And keep in mind that this and the kit, you you have tested kit, right? The, the entire interface 
the application was created by one front-end developer, one only, right? So one person was able, using the whole punch framework, was able to create all that user experience, right? So that's why I think it's super powerful and is creating this field where everyone is at the same level and they can cre easily create applications that because you, you forget about everything. It's just like... Uh, uh, you hook together, you puzzle, you Lego together different things, and boom, you have an application that can scale to billions of users. So that's that's why we are really, really excited about that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to see. And I think it's interesting to, I guess, pull together some of the different insights. Like, I guess, for probably myself and many listeners who maybe in years gone by, if you used BitTorrent, one of the funny or the key insights was this idea that every peer has their own upload bandwidth as well, whereas previously... The model was, oh, no, the server has to have all this bandwidth just so each person can download. But actually in BitTorrent and similarly with Holepunch, it's like each peer is also is downloading but also is uploading off their own connection, whatever whatever high connection or low connection they have, they're also uploading. And so, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm curious to see where that all goes. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, I think that's probably a good spot to finish up. I mean, we've been chatting for a little while, but uh, definitely exciting to hear all the different things that are going on. Um, Paolo, where can listeners find you and uh, find, you know, the different things we've mentioned online? So Twitter, uh, Paolo Arduino, otherwise on GitHub, PRDN, or you can um, go on kit.io. Uh, there is the Discord channel. There are all already a huge community there ton of crazy, crazy ideas uh, to work on. So um, stay tuned also for the mobile version. I think the next time we will, we could do the next uh, podcast on Kit. Uh, we, I actually had already, we did two podcasts on Kit already. So it's, it's not, it's fairly easy, but we are also building toolings for, for doing podcasts on, on Kit. So uh, oh, okay. really high quality. So Maybe next time we can we can test that. But uh, yeah, um, I'm the guy that makes memes a lot on Twitter. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me, Paolo. Thank you. Thank you, Sven. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to retweet and share it out there with people on social media and your family and friends. The website is stefanlevera.com slash 405. That's it from me. I'll see you in the Citadels.